Almost everyone I know has experienced betrayal, someone violating your trust, perhaps by lying, cheating, some kind of abuse, putting their own interests ahead of yours when they promised otherwise. I know I have felt betrayed by uh, people that I love over the years, and sadly, they might feel betrayed by me too in ways that I don't even know. But I do know that betrayal can affect every part of our hearts, especially when it's deep and sometimes in ways we don't understand at first. Some hurts from years ago, we carry with us to the day we die because we don't know what to do with them and they seem impossible to resolve. I'm Sharon Betters and I'm the host of this Help and Hope podcast. And my guest today is Wendy Alsop and she knows uh, what we're talking about when we talk about betrayal and forgiveness and how to live within that context and so today we're going to be focusing on forgiveness. Wendy is a teacher, a blogger, an author, and her most recent book is called I Forgive You. Wow. Betrayal and forgiveness. These are huge topics for a podcast, but I'm hoping that our conversation will be like eating salty peanuts. You'll just have to have more and you'll go out and get Wendy's book, I Forgive You. So Wendy, before we jump into those huge topics, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for having me, Sharon, so much. So yeah, I um, am a math teacher at our local community college, and I'm a divorced single mom of two teenage boys, live here on my grandparents' farm in the house that my mother was raised. So after my divorce, my parents helped me. They were a sweet safety net for me and helped me get my feet on the ground again. So I have a lovely life with my two dogs, my two cats, and my two boys, and I'm a part of a church plant here in the low country of South Carolina. I think I first discovered you through your blog. Theologyforwomen.org. Yes. I loved the title. I thought, yay. But I also believe it was a time where you were really struggling with um, getting a new grip on life through some of the losses you had experienced. And I just resonated so much with the message of hope that you gave, but you were real, you were real. And that's what I love about your book. Um, I forgive you. Uh, sometimes we talk as Christians and I remember one person saying that they needed a counselor and they had been betrayed and were just broken. And they said, um, they talked to a friend about getting a counselor and he said, I have somebody that I can send you to, but they're just going to tell you, you have to forgive them. You're just going to have to forgive them. So I feel like that's a stereotypical fluffy way of dealing with some of this deep betrayal where yes, we know that forgiveness is critical, but it goes so much deeper than that. And your book digs deep. Uh, it's definitely a biblical approach. It's not fluffy. I think it comes through your own life. So could you share some of your life experiences that have given you such a heart for sharing forgiveness with others? So I attended Mars Hill Church um, during its heyday. And for folks who have listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, you have a little insight into the level of dysfunction in the context of what seemed like Orthodox Christianity with a strong view of scripture, but what really was very dysfunctional and just outright blatant sin left and right against people. 
and it went unresolved. So people were sinned against, they were cut off, sometimes never physically harmed, but just brutally emotionally harmed. And it really left a wake of devastation behind it. And so I worked through it in that context. And then again, after my divorce, um, really had to work through it in that context as well. And both of them have become um, very helpful to me really to think through what forgiveness is and what it is not. Mm -hmm. And what we mean when we say we need to forgive versus an expectation of covering over someone's sin or forcing a reconciliation with someone who has not repented. That, that's huge. And I think you've probably touched a nerve with a lot of people, even though they may not have experienced exactly what you've experienced. It's that kind of a wound that you wonder if it could ever heal. And if there is any, like you said, just cover over it and move on. And, and when you talk about Joseph in your book, you say that his grief serves as a mirror for our own. What do you mean by that? Well, I found in my own life, a lot of times in scripture, I will see what my obligations are in a conflict, you know, like a Matthew 18 kind of leave your gift to the altar or, you know, go and confront and then bring a witness to confront. Like, so what, what are the steps I'm supposed to do? But in Joseph, I found a mirror of what I felt. And so for me to find that in scripture, it's it's not just a friend saying, oh, yeah, I felt similarly. It's watching Joseph weep at these various points that I felt like scripture was saying, yeah, Wendy, it hurts. It's not just that you have to academically figure out how to obey God and biblically move forward. I'm also saying, yeah, it hurts. And these emotions you're experiencing are very real. You know, of course, scripture actually really does do this. But often when we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation from a conservative, orthodox viewpoint, we'll deal with it without a real looking at the pain of it. We look at the academics of it, the steps of it. But I felt like Joseph's life and his pain and how that's highlighted. And it's not it's not glossed over in any way for this man that we just see really as a very obedient, faithful man, he felt the weight of the harm. He didn't, there's no minimizing of the weight of the harm. And I just think that's such an important point when we are processing um, either the pain that we, that has been done to us, the harm done to us, or the harm that we have done to others. The Mm -hmm. understanding and facing head on the pain it has caused is part of the process. And I think it's when you are the one that has caused the pain to see that grief and the brokenness is one of the ways God uses to move us to repentance. If our hearts are open to it, if our hearts are open to seeing that grief and that sorrow. And I love the way that you pointed out that all those years he, he lived his life. He kept on going. He persevered. He was obedient. God blessed him. His life was amazing. Uh, Anybody could look at it and say, but Joseph, look where you are now. It's wonderful. But that wound was still there. That grief was still there. And it gives validity, I think. It gives validity to the grief that we don't have to be ashamed when we admit, I'm still broken by this. I'm still hurt by this. 
One of the ways that you help us understand that is when you talk about ambiguous loss. What do you mean when you say ambiguous loss? Ambiguous loss is a modern term that speaks to losses and griefs that don't necessarily have a culturally accepted way to mourn. So in the loss, uh, the death of a loved one, we tend to have understand the grief process with it. But there are also non-traditional losses. Think about someone maybe who is deployed. So they're still in your lives, but they're not in your lives. Or someone with Alzheimer's, they are in your life, but not in your life. So there is a very real grief of the loss of this person. But some might say, but but at least they're still alive. I mean, at least you could still have some conversation with them. But you experience this very real grief in the loss that others may not recognize because it's not a traditional type of loss. So we, we usually think of it where people are physically present, but emotionally absent, or where people are still emotionally present, but they're physically absent, like being deployed. They both cause a different kind of loss, a different kind of grief process. And historically in our culture, we haven't had a a clear way to talk about it or grieve it. Wendy, I think you've touched on it, but can we go a little bit deeper on how does understanding that ambiguous loss, just, um, just identifying it, help us with the grief of betrayal? or uh, the loss that maybe it isn't betrayal, but it's still loss? How does just even understanding uh, the, the idea of ambiguous loss help us deal with those feelings of grief? I think that there is tremendous power in simply naming it and just having an outside person validating what you are experiencing. So we can feel this I know for a long time in my life, both with uh, Mars Hill and my divorce, I have this low level undercurrent of emotion that I didn't really understand until someone started to explain to me ambiguous loss. And it opened my eyes so much, really just to face head on. Yes, I'm grieving. This is a loss and I'm grieving it. And when you can name it that way, then these emotions that you're experiencing, they I, I feel like they have less power to frustrate you. And, and then you can just kind of give them, give in them, oh, you know, it's, wow, I feel very shaky right now. Well, you're, you're in a, a raft on level five rapids. Okay, well, then I can brace myself because I know a little bit more about the river I'm traveling right now. That's a good analogy. And I think it you know, leads into my next question is sometimes when we're experiencing that ambiguous loss, other people, they at first say, I get it, but then they move on with their lives, maybe even being involved with, if it's a, a betrayal kind of a thing, a broken relationship with the people that you don't have a relationship with anymore. They go on with their lives just like it's normal. I mean, I imagine you went through that with your church hurt where you were on the outside, but people that used to be part of your family, they're still going about life as normal, even though they know how hurt you are, how hurt you may have been. It just feels like another betrayal. How do you deal with that? Is it another betrayal or is that just something that we're feeling because we're so vulnerable? I think that rather than seeing it as a betrayal, hopefully, folks, you can get to the place where you realize 
a lot of folks are doing something out of ignorance that they just actually they're trying to make their best decision with their data. And I found this both post Morris Hill and after my divorce that, of course, a lot of folks were going to be like, well, you know, I'm just not sure exactly how to read the situation and I'm going to go forward this way and I'm uncomfortable around you. And these things are just brutally painful for you. But years later, especially at Mars Hill, after this, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, it was just so fascinating to me to hear from many, many people that I felt had sailed on the boat without me that I really struggled with how to think about sharing in retrospect their perspective at the time, which they were just, they were for the very most part, they were just trying to do the best they could. And a lot of times they had wrong information. They were immature in the faith and they too eventually were harmed as well. And so if you can go back to the first Corinthians 13, love is ever ready to believe the best. Love is ever ready to give the benefit of the doubt and understand this person may be hurting me, but I don't think they're deliberately trying to hurt me. They're probably trying to make the best set of decisions they know how with the information they have, and they may very well regret it in five years. They may come back to you. And I've had this where people come back to me and say, you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. I'm like, you're right. You didn't understand. And I can give you grace for that. Because you know what? I have, since I've suffered some of these things, look back. I have one friend in particular who had a very long-term ongoing issue. And at some point I'm like, you know what? Wow, this is going on too long. That you you something you're doing something. I don't know what exactly. And I eventually went back to her and, and just had to say, I am so sorry. I didn't understand. I was spiritually immature. I hadn't suffered at that point. And I didn't mean it maliciously. I loved you, but I was ignorant and I did not know how to carry that weight with you. And going forward, I'm going to try to do a better job. If we can give that kind of grace, knowing that we too, without our own suffering, would probably be pretty ignorant. um, It really, it goes a long way. I totally agree with what you're saying is give the benefit of the doubt to the other person. And we're often, we're in the, in the soup, we're in the hot soup all the way into the hottest part of the soup, but they're on the edge of the bowl. And so their perspective is totally different and they're not thinking about it all the time. Like we are. So it's like, it's our big deal, but it's not their big deal. For some folks, it's really threatening. You know, if that's, for instance, at Marcella, if that's your church and that's your whole life, you know, really to consider that it may be as bad as some people are saying is really threatening. I mean, it threatens more than just, it's not a small issue that you're going to have to deal with. So yeah, um, just given the benefit of the doubt is just really important. I think another thing that we struggle with, especially as Christians, is how much do we say? How much do we, like, do we go to that person and say, if you knew the whole story, what was going on here, then you would have a different perspective. Or do we step back and say, this is the Lord protecting me. He will fight my battles for me. I am not going to pursue those kinds of conversations. How do you know when to pursue and when not to? That is a great question. When people came to me, I was 
honest, but I did not seek out people to tell. And the passage that really helped me was First Peter 2, where Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, because I did need a perspective around both Mars Hill and my divorce on when your reputation takes a hit and people believe badly of you. And I'm, you know, I'm a church girl and fear of man kind of woman, <laughs> you know, where I'm like, oh, somebody thinks badly of me. Oh, my goodness. This ruins my life. Mm. I must defend myself. And it's not a healthy place to be. We have to be able to endure, even if we feel like we were right, but people are believing wrongly. And we certainly have a model in Jesus of this. First Peter 2 is clear. He was maligned and his reputation was harmed by lies. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and he causes us to do it too. It doesn't mean I don't speak truth when I have the opportunity, but I also don't have to bang my head up against the wall. I don't have to, I, I mean, I feel like I did try for a while and it's like you get so frustrated. I, I finally like broke a blood vessel in my brain or something. And now I can't even get frustrated anymore. I, so now I feel, I feel like the Lord has really rooted a lot of that out of me. And it's so much better not to walk around with the fear of man and a constant need to defend yourself. Um, I don't have to circle the wagons. I don't have to self-justify. I can speak the truth with the opportunities I have and try to be wise when the time comes. But it is not my job to defend my reputation. You could never have imagined back then of how God was going to move in the future in both situations. Right. You could not have imagined it. And I, one scripture that God keeps bringing to mind to me in these kinds of places is I will fight this battle for you. You have only to be still. That is, that's hard, but it's a blessed place to be in those moments. And sometimes it's only moments where you can rest there. And then you see something and you say, oh, okay, he's got this. And I can remember a moment where the Lord telling me that about my husband many years ago, I thought, There were people who, you know, a group that wanted to just destroy him. And I was sure that they would succeed so that he would never be able to be a pastor again. And, you know, I just had this huge inflamed place. That was my world at that moment. I was young. And I remember, I just remember him clearly telling me, your husband is in my hands. Don't worry. He's going to be fine. And praise God, he took care of it. And it wasn't as big as a deal as I thought at the time. But that scripture, we often don't know what it means, but I think if we don't know, then we shouldn't go. (laughs) We need to step back and wait and just keep waiting and watching him work. So when I think about your title, I forgive you, is there a time where you forgive someone who is not repentant? How does that work? How does that look? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And we have this model in Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen, I just saw this in the book of Acts this last week, reading through my Bible. Stephen, when he was being martyred, prayed the same. So our forgiveness of another is not dependent on their repentance. Reconciliation, though, is different. And if we can keep those two words separate, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is me letting go of my desire and attempts at revenge. I'm letting go of retribution. So, you know, I think of 
the illustration that really struck me so, so deeply was the families of the murder victims of the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston standing up and telling Dylan Roof, who was quite unrepentant, that they forgive gave him. But what were they doing? They were letting go of their desire and right to verbally tear him apart in court. You know, they had every right to just scream at him, to humiliate, you know, even to extract revenge. But they chose to forgive. And that's letting go of the right of revenge. Vengeance is God's. It's not letting him be free to go do it again. Nobody by their words of forgiveness thinks that they're advocating for him to get out of jail. And he, he, to my knowledge, has not repented in any way, but we can forgive and then let a pure form of biblical justice take place in place of our efforts to humiliate or exact revenge. That's, it's interesting you would bring up um, the Charleston Nine. We just uh, posted a, a Help and Hope podcast where my husband interviewed Anthony Thompson, the pastor whose wife was leading the Bible study and was murdered Oh wow! Uh, that, that night. And he describes being in the courtroom and he was, he wanted revenge. And he said, mm-hmm. something happened to him when he stood up. He was, he said, I can't explain it, but God told me I had to forgive him. And it's just very moving to hear him talk about it. But he goes on to say that it changed not just him, but the whole group who offered forgiveness, who forgave this man. Um, Charleston was transformed by it. They didn't have the riots and all the others. The whole world was watching and they saw something transformational through forgiveness through that. And so I love the way that you are saying there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance is the key to that is whether or not the person who has brought the harm is repentant of what they have done. And so there are a couple of the takeaway points I hear what you're saying is that the forgiveness of someone who is not repentant is absolutely possible and necessary and can be transforming us and that it doesn't mean reconciliation. That's a whole nother process that we go through. And I think we get mixed up with that. I think, I think for us, Absolutely. it's hard enough to forgive, but if we can soak in the fact that justice is the Lord's and he hates injustice. So in time, we have to trust him with all of that. And also the other thing I think is these places really take us into the heart of the Lord. Either we run toward him or we run away from him. And, and those of you who are listening, you can run toward him with the broken heart, with when you're not forgiving the person, you know, and you say, Lord, I want to forgive the person. I don't know how I can't do it. I don't know how to do this. You're going to have to show me how he welcomes those moments. And those are sanctifying opportunities for us to know him better. Sometimes he answers our prayers for wanting to know him better in very strange ways, (laughs) ways that we wouldn't have chosen in those broken places. So I'm sure you would say that you know more about the Lord than you would ever have imagined because of those hard places that you have experienced. How do you know, Wendy, when to stop trying to reconcile with the person who has hurt you? Do you know? I think when someone refuses to face their sin head on, then you can forgive them. But, you know, if they can't face their sin head on, 
it's impossible for you to make that happen. You need a Holy Spirit supernatural work to convict them and show them their sin. But apart from someone being able to name their sin and face it head on, I it's I don't see how reconciliation can be possible when with sin not being addressed. I mean, it's pretty core. This is pretty core to Christianity and the gospel. It's good news for our sin to transform us away from our sin, not to equip us to sweep sin under the carpet or equip us to pretend like sin didn't matter. That's the opposite of Christianity. <laughs> well, as we're, we're going to start wrapping up our conversation, and we have just touched on the tip of the iceberg of these topics, and I hope that you will get Wendy's book, I Forgive You. It's I read it almost in one sitting, it, not because it was light. I just was so drawn in by Wendy's message, the scripture, all scripture. And now I'm going to go back and read it, take my time to read it and just soak in it because there's so much there. But I'm going back to Joseph. And um, I think, you know, looking at him, he, I think maybe he forgave his brothers, but never thought of reconciliation was possible. I don't know that for sure. But his brother's actions put him on a pathway that was filled with betrayal and isolation. I think of the moments when he's in prison and, and he, the guy you know, that leaves before him says, okay, I'll tell somebody about you. And he never does. And there's so much in those sentences of Joseph, he's forgotten again and again. And yet there is a point where we see fruit in Joseph's life that is beyond anyone's imagination. And you talk about this in your book about those moments where you feel as though there's no fruit, there's no opportunity, all my dreams have been taken away from me. How do you know that God still has purpose there and there is opportunity for that spiritual fruit to be growing? Scripture talks a lot about us bearing fruit in hard places. You know, they that sow in tears will reap in joy. They that carry their bag, their little bag of seed with weeping will eventually bear fruit. They'll carry out their sheaves. And I love that, that idea and that psalm of carrying your bag of seed in your weeping. Though we, are, though we are weeping, we still are sowing. And we're going to see a fruit and a harvest for it. Joseph named his son Ephraim fruitful because I've been fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I just think it's so beautiful because he, I want to be out of the land of affliction. I didn't want to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. I wanted to be freed from the affliction. But that title Joseph gives his son gives us a different perspective that was so mentally helpful to me. You know, no, look around. It's barren here. But there are seeds to plant and real fruit to harvest. You know, I haven't abandoned you in a desert with no place for you to minister or to, to plant seeds or to harvest. And it's, it's such a, a beautiful metaphor, I think, for and, and hopeful. It just gives us hope that this other person, because you're going to really be in the land of affliction until this other person maybe owns their sin head on and confesses it and tries to repair the wrong. And for many of us, that's never going to happen. So I don't want fruitfulness in my life to be utterly dependent on someone else doing what they need to do. And God says, it's not. I can make you fruitful even when others do the exact opposite of what they should be doing. 
And um, you mentioned Judah earlier. I think it is so interesting in Joseph's life that when Judah does show up, his brothers do show up. Like you said, I think he he had let go of his need for retribution, but he is not sure that they are not still exactly like they were. And that's why I, I suspect that's why he wanted them to bring him Benjamin, but not to prove that they were true or, um, but because probably his whole life, he had worried if they had done the same thing to Benjamin that they had done to him. If they were willing to do this to Joseph, would they not also be willing to kill Benjamin? And so I actually suspect that Joseph had his brothers bring Benjamin to him to protect Benjamin from them. But then he has this moment where he's trying to get Benjamin, you know, they, uh, he's uh, hidden the silver in Benjamin's bag. And now he tells Judah that he's going to keep Benjamin, that they can go home, but Benjamin's going to stay with him. And Judah gets in between Joseph and Benjamin and says, no, take me instead. And it's such this beautiful moment. It's like, oh, that's repentant. You know, that's when you have turned 180 degrees. You've gone from the being the brother who sold his little brother into slavery and into the brother who's going to put himself in place of his little brother. And it's such a beautiful gospel moment of transformation and change. And then again, that's one of those moments where Joseph's like, oh, ugly crying. This is such a monumental thing that Judah is doing in light of what what had happened in the past. So there's so many beautiful moments in his story that really give me hope and a vision of what what repentance and reconciliation look like. Yeah, it's 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 very moving, uh, beautiful and moving. Well, as we do wrap up, Wendy, I'd like for you to speak to that person who's listening, who is just maybe right in the middle of trying to find their way through an extremely painful season of betrayal. What hope can you give to that person? Well, my encouragement is that God does not expect you to figure this out on your own. I love I go back to this phrase all the time when Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his return. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. So he's left us the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. And you don't have to figure this out on your own. You can cry out to God for help on how to think about it. um, Help to do what feels completely impossible to let go of retribution. But also, I hope that forgiveness, when you understand what it is and what it is not, I hope that you'll find forgiveness in Jesus's name is actually something you are equipped to do because Jesus did it first for us. Wendy, thank you so much for sharing your heart and your time. And this is the second time that I've had the privilege of talking with Wendy. We've talked about her other book called Companions and Suffering, and it's just Uh, amazing. Another opportunity for you to just go deep into some of the hard places of life with Wendy. This is the Help and Hope podcast. I'm Sharon Betters, and I'm going to include links to Wendy's books and her blog, Biblical Theology for Women, in the show notes at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. Click the Help and Hope link, and you'll find my conversation with Wendy Alsup. I forgive you. Her book, uh, go out and get it. Go, go, go to order it right now. You will not regret it. 
and you'll want to pass it on. I know I have people I'm passing it on to myself. Uh, there is just such rich truth in it. And I'm so grateful that God has given Wendy the heart to share what he has taught her through her own life journey. And I look forward to whatever the next book is, Wendy, that you might be working on. Thank you again for joining us. Go to markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you're going to hear more stories like this, lots of free resources that offer the help and hope of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.